It's all of it on WNYC. I'm David First, in for Allison Stewart. Last June was the 60th anniversary of the assassination of Medgar Evers, field secretary for the Mississippi NAACP, who at the time was the highest profile civil rights leader to be killed. Journalist and MSNBC host Joy Reid has written a new book about Medgar Evers, but within a framework of love, in particular his relationship with his wife, Murley. The book traces the story of Medgar and Murley growing up in their respective Mississippi towns. We learn about Medgar's service in World War II and how his experience in Europe as a black man reinforced his commitment to fighting for civil rights in America. We also revisit the moment Medgar and Murley first met while in college. There was a spark right away. And we see how they became fierce advocates for equality in Mississippi, never leaving the state while facing daily threats. Medgar Evers was assassinated in his own driveway at the hands of a white supremacist. Now, Merle Evers-Williams has been carrying on her late husband's legacy. She once served as a board chair of the NAACP and continued to fight to bring her husband's murderer to justice. He was finally found guilty in 1994. Medgar and Murley, Medgar Evers and the Love Story That Awakened America is out now. And with us is the book's author, Joy Reid. Welcome. David, thanks for having me on. You make it clear from the beginning that your book about Medgar and Murley Evers, with all they did in the fight for civil rights, is a love story first. Why use the framework of a love story to, to write about these two icons? Well, I did that because I think that the way that we look at civil rights heroes, um, I think, is sometimes a little bit too antiseptic. We look at them as these sort of marble statues who did all of these great things as if they weren't men. But what these men were, whether it was Dr. King or Malcolm X or any of the civil rights leaders that we know the names of and those who we don't but maybe should, like Medgar, they were human beings. They fell in love. They had kids. They had, you know, school lunches that needed packing and kids <laughs> that needed to be packed off to school and normal lives in addition to fighting these heroic battles for civil rights. That's These are real people that uh, exactly had fell in love. And, and speaking of love, Medgar and Murley met in college at what is now known as Alcorn State University. Medgar was a 25-year-old junior, a World War II veteran and a football player. Murley was 17 and a freshman. And you write in the book, talking about that moment, Medgar said to Murley, quote, you shouldn't lean on that electric pole. You might get shocked. What do you think that (laughs) moment says about Medgar and his confidence? The message, I care. (laughs) I mean, he he was initially um, immediately showing her his protective Mm. instincts over this beautiful young woman. Uh, And, you know, that might have not been game like in the modern era. But back then, that was pretty much game because she took a look at this handsome football player and he caught her eye, uh, even though he literally embodied all of the things her grandmother and aunt had told her to stay away from, meaning a football player, an upperclassman, and a veteran. Hmm. What was the early courting between Medgar and Murley like? This is one of the things I love most about the story. It was an intellectual courtship um, initially because it was a platonic relationship. Um, She definitely had feelings for him and he for her, but it was an unrequited love for quite some time because of the age difference, which Mm. he was very much aware of. And so for her, it was this fascination with this man who was unlike any 
you know, boy or man she had ever known. He was interested in world affairs. He was obsessed with the anti-colonial movements on the African continent, for instance. You know, you have to realize this was an era when uh, former colonies uh, in Africa were liberating themselves from Europe, from their European colonizers. And in particular, he was interested in the Kenyan freedom movement, the Kenyan liberation movement, and Jomo Kenyatta. And those are the kinds of things he liked to talk about. And he would sort of tell her about the things he saw in the world. He had been in Europe, which is something most white men had not traveled to Europe. But he had been in Antwerp, Belgium, and he'd been to France. And, you know, he'd lived this other life that was so unusual for a Black man of that era. So he had interesting things to say. Mm. And she wanted to be his intellectual equal. And so she would spend time studying up on world affairs (laughs) so she could have these conversations with him. And then on the other side, she was an incredible musician and she would practice the piano. And because he liked her, he would pretend that he enjoyed the classical music she was playing, (laughs) even though he really didn't. (laughs) Wow. Wow. Uh, What a what a sacrifice. Uh, Joy, uh, you know, you're you were talking about being warned away from him by by her her family. And but you're also describing this very intellectual relationship when they eventually started dating. Merle was at first terrified of telling Mama, who was her grandmother, you know, tell us about that. Why was she so afraid? Well, yeah, because she had been told very specifically those three kinds of men, upperclassmen, football players, and veterans. And she knew him being all three and the age. The age difference really made a difference. And you have to realize that for a lot of these Black men that went off to World War II, they were starting college at an older age, just by definition, because of that. And so, you know, he was aware of it. She was aware of it. And so he starts this lobbying campaign. He travels up to Vicksburg, not to see Murley on the school breaks, but to see them, to see Mama and her aunt, whose name is also Murley. And he really lobbied them. He wanted them to know that he respected Merle, that he would provide for her, that he was a good man, a good guy, and that he had, you know, positive values, right? Good values that he had been raised with. Now, the challenge for them is that he was also very open, that he was a civil rights man. And that scared uh, Mama and Aunt Merle. They were very afraid, as any Black person would be in 1950s Mississippi, of any Black man who spoke up about rights and civil rights and voting rights. And he had tried to register to vote. He'd done all the things you were not supposed to do as a Black man. So that definitely made them nervous. But over time, he won them over. The campaign worked. Yes. (laughs) I I want to get more into Murley's background. She was born and raised in Vicksburg, Mississippi. And you write that along with Mama, she was raised by a village of women. Can, Can you explain that and talk about the values that they instilled in Murley? Absolutely. Absolutely. So Murley's father was also a World War II veteran, but he came back really broken from the war um, and just not able to really care for her the way that a father should. And so she was um, really left in the hands of these women. Her mom was a teenage mother and her grandmother um, lived across the street and one day marches across the street and takes this baby from this 16-year-old who Merle would later nickname Madeer. And so Madeer almost grew up like a sister of Merle's, but not as a mom. And then her grandmother, um, who also raised her daughter, Merle, who was quite a bit older than than, than baby Merle. Um, they mm. used to call baby Merle's sister because she was the baby sister. And Aunt Merle was in her 20s. And so she had had this sort of full life. And her son, um, you know, kind of lived in and out of the house. But it was really the women who were around. It was 
mama. It was Aunt Merle, and it was when she could be there, Madeer. And those were Merle's village, and they taught her her values. They had her playing the piano and teaching her to play and hyping her up and saying one day she'd make it to Carnegie Hall, which seemed very unusual for a little Black girl in Mississippi. But they would tell her this is the dream. And they wanted her to rear her to be an educator like them, to value education. And, you know, even though they were poor by the standards of white Mississippi, Merle thought they were rich because they were so rich in tradition and so rich in love. She didn't even know they were poor until she visited Madeer at work at a white family's house and realized, oh, okay, Hmm. they have indoor plumbing. They're the ones who are rich. Medgar uh, was also born and raised in Mississippi, but with a slightly different childhood. He grew up in Decatur, a small, uh, poor, rural town, and life was difficult. He witnessed his first lynching as a young child. Can you talk about the realities that Medgar had to face growing up in Decatur? Yeah, and the thing that brings the two of them together is they're both, you know, obviously the scions of enslaved people in Mississippi, and that in and of itself gives you a legacy of lack and a legacy of terror. And they both grew up knowing and understanding white terrorism, and that was just a part of life. But for Medgar, um, it was an unusual sort of seating in that community because his father, who they called Crazy Jim, because he was this unusual black man who didn't bow down to white people. And so, of course, white folks thought he must be crazy. The fact that he stood up to them meant he must be mad. So they called him Crazy Jim. And his mom, um, their mom, was a a homemaker, but she also did white people's washing, and she was very, very religious. So Medgar and his brother Charles grew up in a blended family. Their parents had had other children and been married to other people before. But when they came together, their two sons that were common to them— Charles and Medgar were super close. And Medgar and Charles slept in the same bed. Mm. Charles would warm up the bed uh, for Medgar because he didn't like being cold. So he wanted to make sure his feet weren't cold. And they just grew up as this unusual family that stood out because the father was so bold and because they did things like read the Chicago Defender to read about positive things about Black people, not just that Blacks were slaves and useless and worthless other than their physical labor. You're talking about Medgar's father, James Evers, right? Yes, Uh, absolutely. Tough guy, wouldn't take any abuse from white people. What did James teach Medgar and Charles about maintaining your dignity while also trying to stay alive in the South? Yeah, I mean, one of the stories that both Medgar and Charles separately tell. Now, they both, Charles was a bit of an exaggerator. So he had Medgar being like seven, but Medgar said, no, he was about 11 when they first saw this lynching of this man named Willie Tingle, who was a friend of their father's. And he was dragged through the streets and lynched, shot full of holes and hung up uh, in the Decatur fairgrounds when Medgar was 11 and Charles was 12. And they had to walk to school every day, seeing his clothes propped up, left there by the Klan to make sure that that was a message to every white person. But to contrast with that, their father in their presence had stood up to a white shopkeeper who tried to cheat him. Now, James Evers, Crazy Jim, couldn't necessarily read, but he could add. And he knew he'd been cheated. And when this white shop owner tried to tell him that he has that was wrong, he broke a Coke bottle and threatened him and said, if you come across that counter, you're going to catch the end of this. They saw that and witnessed the father 
stand up to a white man. So that was one lesson they learned. But they also saw that he had to sit up all night with his shotgun out in case that white man and a posse came for him. And also when it came to the lynching, Medgar asked his father, could they do, could white people do that to you? And his father, as tough as he was, crazy Jim as he was, had to say, yes, at any time, any white person that wanted to kill me could do that too. So they grew up with this sense of boldness, but also a complete lack of a sense of safety. We're speaking with Joy Reid, host of MSNBC's The Readout, also the author of the new book, Medgar and Murley, Medgar Evers and the Love Story That Awakened America. In the 1940s, Medgar and Charles both drop out of high school and enlist in the Army to serve in World War II. Medgar was on the beaches during D-Day. The Army was segregated at the time, but as black men, they find more freedom in Europe than in America. First of all, why did he enlist? I think from what I can understand and from what Murley said, Miss Murley said, and what others uh, said and in the research, it was because of Charles. Medgar absolutely admired his older brother, Charles. He was his best friend um, and he was his mentor and he was his idol. And so when Charles enlisted, Medgar decided to do the same and he really followed him across the waters. Um, and also I think it was to get out of Mississippi and see the world. I think for a lot of black men in that era, the war was not something frightening. It was an opportunity. It was an opportunity to get out of the South in particular and to get out of these small towns where they had no rights. And he emerges in Europe as this young man who sees a place where there is no segregation, where there's no de jure segregation. And so he dates a white woman, something he could have been lynched for in Mississippi. He's able to walk freely through Europe when he's not on base. He's just a man, a regular, ordinary man. And a taste of that really fuels both his and Charles's activism when they get home. The first thing they do when they get home is they try to register to vote. Now, they are met with hundreds of gun-wielding white men who say, you're not doing that. But they did manage to register. Um, they didn't manage to vote because even more white men showed up when they tried to vote. But it changed them. And I think it changed a lot of black men who served during that era. That that experience in Europe really fueled his thinking when he returned. Absolutely. And I think it wasn't just that. I think one of the sort of undertold stories of the civil rights revolution is that it was made in part because Black men had served in World War I and especially World War II. And not only did that give them a sense of their own dignity, a sense of their own valor, but it also made very clear the contradictions between a country officially fighting fascism, but where fascism was the law at home, the literal law in Mississippi. And they came home, a lot of these men, saying, mm. we're not going to fight fascism abroad and then accept fascism at home. The other thing I think it did is it took men like Harry Truman and John F. Kennedy, who also fought in the war, and it may it gave them a different perspective about black men, about their their capacity for heroism and valor. The bravery of these men actually touched people like Truman, who grew up super racist. But when he saw that these men could serve and did serve and were willing to serve their country, it gave him a perspective that allowed him to change his views policy-wise. And I think it did the same for Kennedy. Kennedy respected Medgar. Evers. He respected him so much that when he was assassinated, he buried him with honors at Arlington National Seminary, Cemetery because he was a fellow veteran and in his mind, a hero. Well, uh, let's enter the 1950s now. And Medgar and Murley are now a married couple. Medgar accepts a job deep in the Mississippi Delta in Mound Bayou, the oldest black-founded town in the nation. First of all, tell us about this town. What, what was it like in the 1950s? 
So Mount Bayou is this historic community, and there were so many of these Black towns that grew up. We've now heard a lot about Black Wall Street and some of the other towns that were burned to the ground uh, many years later. But Mount Bayou is still there, um, and it was founded by the enslaved, some enslaved men who served on the plantation or lived on the plantation, I should say, were captive on the plantation of the brother of Jefferson Davis, ironically enough, mm. uh, the president of the Confederacy. His brother saw himself as a progressive slaveholder. So what he would do is he would allow black men to run businesses on the plantation. And one of them was one of his young enslaved captives who was really great at business and math. And so he ran a general store on the plantation. So when the union comes marching in, the white family flees and it leaves the black enslaved people in charge of the plantation. They actually continue to run the plantation and turned it into a little town. Well, when the war is long over, Jefferson Davis's brother comes back and reclaims his property, but they actually wound up buying it from him, weirdly enough. But that didn't last. Over time, they lost the plantation to the Davis family who took it back. So they went in search of a new town to create, to remake this experience. And they found this swampland in Mound Bayou, Mississippi. And they built up a town that was the jewel of the black world for many people. It had a hospital um, where black people could be born and not be in the basement and be treated with dignity. It had the first HMO in the country that allowed people to afford health care. It had its own movie theater, beautiful homes. It was a place that black people wanted to live deep in the Delta. It was a place of dignity, no segregation. You could come in the front door, you could eat in a restaurant, and you could be a human being. Well, Joy, we're in the 1950s now, and, and I want to get to a historic moment in the lives of Medgar and Murley Evers and America, Emmett Till's murder in 1955 in the Mississippi Delta. How did Till's death affect the Evers family, their thinking, and how they thought about their own safety? And, you know, at the time that um, this young man whose family is from Mississippi comes down to visit his cousins and stay with his uncle for the summer, he's then lynched. Uh, Mississippi tries to cover up this murder. And this becomes Medgar Evers' first official investigation as the Mississippi Field Secretary for the NAACP. And he goes back in his mind to Willie Tingle, who when he died, there were no services, there were no protests, there was nothing in the papers. It was as if this man just disappeared and vanished into the earth. He was determined that when Black people were lynched, that was not going to happen. And this was a case that he was determined to make sure went to trial. So he went into the Delta, which was part of his job, and he dressed as a field hand himself, along with two other NAACP investigators. And they just asked people to tell what they knew. And he managed to get not one, not two, but three witnesses to testify at that trial, including Emmett Till's uncle, who he then had to all out of town on a train, that $11 trip to Chicago to save their lives because you could be lynched for testifying against a white man in court. It's why it was essentially legal to kill black people because you would never be convicted. So he manages to get this to go to trial. And there's this dramatic moment at the trial where Emmett Till's uncle points to the white men who abducted his 
nephew and killed him and said, dar he, the two words that would have cost him his life had he stayed in Mississippi. But it was an historic moment. And it meant that even though those men weren't convicted, that case went to trial. And of course, Mamie Till Mobley made it a national and international scandal by showing the body of her child when she got back to Chicago, having an open casket funeral, which she actually did as something that she saw done in Mississippi by the wife of a man named Reverend George Lee. He did that first in Mississippi, and his wife Rosebud pioneered this protest, and Mamie Till followed it with her child, Emmett Till. Now, in the mid-1950s, the Evers moves their family to Jackson, the capital of Mississippi. They settled on a small house on Gine Street. I hope I'm saying that correctly. Uh, yes. Thank you. <laughs> North of downtown. <laughs> uh, what kind of reputation does Medgar begin to earn in Jackson? Well, it's it's interesting because the move from Mount Bayou, which while it was this sort of colossal achievement for Black people— Merley hated it. <laughs> Miss Merley hated it because it was dusty. It was in the. It was out in the Delta. It was lots of bugs. Okay, and time to move. Time to move. And so when Medgar gets this opportunity to move and have the Jackson office be the home office of his NAACP field secretary duties, she is thrilled <laughs> that they're going to be in the mm-hmm. city. So Jackson is downtown. It's near the shops, even though they're segregated shops. It's near the movie theaters, even though they're segregated. So she was thrilled to move. Not so thrilled with his new job, though, because it meant that his profile was going to be much, much higher because there was only one field secretary, him. He was the first to ever have the job and the only one holding it. And so there was a lot of fear, not just among Merle, but uh, among her the, her new friends and neighbors on the block. They were like, the guy moving onto our block, which is currently populated mostly by teachers and, um, and, and you know, men who were middle class blacks to the extent that those existed in Mississippi, now we were going to have the highest profile civil rights leader in the state living on the street. So there were a lot of people who were afraid to have them on the block. And then it was punctuated by the design of the house. Um, There were two black men, black uh, real estate developers, who created the block, and it was revolutionary in its own right. It was a sub-development for black, uh, mainly World War II veterans who bought with the GI Bill and their wives. But Medgar's house was designed with no front door. He had it designed to his specifications with only a side door and a carport where you'd have to come up that carport so that you could see who was coming in the house. It didn't have a sloped roof like all the other houses because he didn't, I'm sorry, it had a sloped roof, unlike the other flat roof houses, so that no one could get on the roof and come into the house. It was designed specifically for security. So people were nervous, and a lot of people would not greet them when Mm. they arrived on the block. I have so many questions I want to get to, but I I just want to, you know, Medgar would work long hours, late nights, sometimes seven days a week. it's, this is a lot of stress in, in addition to, you know, the, the hours. This is very stressful work. How did Medgar's job and the pressure affect the health of their relationship? It was stressful. I mean, Murley miscarried for the first time um, when they were still in Mount Bayou before they even left just because of the stress of worrying about him and not being able to know at the end of any given day whether he was coming home and just the loneliness and the depression. And in my interviews with her, she was very open about that, Hmm. about dealing with depression and loneliness as a spouse. And when 
they moved to Jackson, things only got worse because now they had not one, not two, but eventually three children. And she was essentially a single mother. Um, she was the person driving not just her kids, but other kids to school every day, plus cooking for all the NAACP and other luminaries coming to town. So if Dick Gregory or, or Lena Horne was in town, she had to put them up and cook for them and wash for them. Because remember, she's a 1950s housewife. All of these domestic duties are hers and hers alone. And she was stressed. They would argue about money because once she had her third child, she stopped being his secretary. So there was no second salary. They had two car notes, a house note. It was a lot of stress. And their marriage at one point really broke down. Uh, it got to the point where she confronted him and said, you have to choose between this work and me and your family. And you need to tell me right now, who do you love more, me and your kids or this work? And his answer to her didn't make her happy, but it was honest. He said, I'm doing this because I love you. The reason I'm doing what I'm doing and risking my life is for you. And it's to make Mississippi better for you and the kids. Hmm. So in other words, I ain't stopping. <laughs> I ain't stopping. Joy, you write in the book that when we think of civil rights history and its famous figures and those that we lost to racially motivated violence, the name Medgar Evers tends to get lost. Why do you think that is? I think part of it is the year in which he died, 1963. 1963 was such a momentous year for civil rights. And so many things happened shortly after he was assassinated. Recall that initially after the assassination, there were protests from Philadelphia to New Jersey, to Mississippi, to, to the Carolinas, everywhere. People understood this as a national event. But shortly after that, you had the Freedom Rides coming through Mississippi. You had not long after that, the March on Washington. You had not long after that, the Birmingham church bombing that killed four little girls. And then of course, at the close of the year, you had the assassination of the president of the United States, John F. Kennedy. Mm. So I think events overtook Medgar, even even though, ironically enough, he was involved in each of those events. The first person to hold a copy of the Civil Rights Bill that would become the Civil Rights Act of 64 was Merle Evers, who stood there with her children in the White House after being invited by President Kennedy, and he promised her he would do that bill. Medgar was in the process of preparing to testify in favor of having such a bill when he was assassinated. The March on Washington was punctuated, of course, by Dr. King's famous speech, but he gave a version of that speech before the March on Washington in Detroit mm. in front of 20,000 people in which he said, I have a dream that one day people like Medgar Evers and Emmett Till can live to adulthood and freedom. And, and that was something that was cut out of the final version of the speech to make the speech a bit milder because of the fears of the Kennedy administration. Well, the well, clan that killed those four little girls was an offshoot of the same clan that killed Medgar Evers. Uh, you could go on and on. These well, events are all related. There's so much more. Cut out. There's so much more yeah. we need to read about. And you can read all about it in the new book, Medgar and Murley, Medgar Evers and the Love Story That Awakened America. Joy Reid, the host of MSNBC's The Readout, thank you so much for joining us on All of It. Thank you. This is All of It. I'm WNYC. Thanks for listening.